My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Again, my friends and listeners, this is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, coming to you with another episode of Euripides, Eumenides, a theater history podcast. Welcome back, or for those of you just joining us, welcome for the first time. (laughs) Here we are beginning year three of Euripides, Eumenides, and I've got a lot planned for the future. When I first started this podcast and consulted a lot of people I trust in the performing arts industry about starting a theater history podcast with the format I had in mind, I got a pretty frequent question. Do you think you'll be able to find enough topics to talk about? Uh, turns out, yes, I can. (laughs) Actually, when I started, I began making a short list just to keep me motivated. A a, a word document, double-spaced, one topic per line. And when I started, I had maybe about 16 topics that came to mind immediately. Well, obviously, here we are starting the third year of this show, and I'm on episode 54. Granted, many of those have been two-part episodes, so one topic per two-part episode, but I'm finding no shortage of things to talk about. And plus, I keep finding new stuff. I mean, who would have thought that I could have talked at length on episode 52 about the life and stories of Calamity Jane and how that could have made us ponder the nature of theater in the first place? And that Word document I mentioned, I'm on page four, and only two of the pages have topics I've already covered. So there are even some of the original topics I came up with that I have not even started to peel the onion on. <laughs> Now, that said, if you have any ideas for future topics, I'm all ears. Write me at trident at tridenttheater.com or go to tridenttheater.com and find the contact us form or hit me up on my social media. I'll talk about those later in the show. Now, as I've done with my last few episodes, I want to shout out where I'm seeing new listeners. So what's up, Austria? Oh, hey, Austria. If you haven't checked out my episode 19 on Rebecca the Musical, you gave us that lovely little piece. And as we find out in the episode coming up, we may actually see it come to fruition in English-speaking markets in the near future. Here's some that I didn't see coming. Hello, Switzerland and Singapore. Nice to have you with us. And I'm going to shoot in the dark here, but it looks like Toronto is enjoying the show or... At least many listeners in Ontario find their way here. As always, if any of you would like me to get a live in-person episode near you someday, just let me know. So, all that aside, let's get to today's episode. 
I have been very fortunate with this show that I've been able to make some fantastic acquaintances with people in the industry because they've heard this show and they want to contribute. One such person is the outstanding London-based theater producer Richard Jordan. Not only is he a producer, but a recurring columnist for the theater magazine The Stage, and has long graced his readers with his extensive theater wisdom. And when I first met Richard, I knew exactly how he could contribute. Richard has been in the producing game for a long time, and I would say knows what it takes to make a show both financially and artistically successful. So whenever I have Richard on the show, I do what I like to call a post-mortem. For those of you unfamiliar with that term, that is the meeting that is held once a production is done to determine the strengths and areas improvement for a production team going forward. He and I have done a couple of these before, and what happens is I pick a show from theater history to determine why it was so successful when it might not have been, or why it didn't go as well as hoped. I got a great one for him today, K-Pop the Musical, which very briefly saw its day on Broadway in November and December 2022. And Richard and I managed to talk about this for two hours, but I've condensed it to the best I can for you today, so you're getting the best parts. And I was super lucky to get him because he was in kind of a major project at home, and he's headed out to Australia, and he'll probably be there when this episode drops. So just consider yourself fortunate we uh, got him for this episode. And speaking of this episode... Let's get right to it. The postmortem of K-pop the musical. Okay, so uh, man, I'm so glad I got you between uh your departure to Australia to open a new show and uh your current project of uh, uh, helping your mentor uh, Michael Codron, who was involved with so many amazing things in theater, but he is retiring in his 90s, as one does. Uh, <laughs> but Richard, you said you have been involved in like being kind of the archivist because you have libraries and museums who are saying they're all full of things, so they can't take them. But you ended up getting a really cool couple things from this office. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I sort of in a way, I suppose I've become an adopted unofficial archivist. I mean, Michael is a, a really successful theater producer. So, yeah, so I've um, I've had a very nice time of, of sort of trying to help and a sad time because, you know, there's been a lot of history there because I used to work uh, for, for, for Michael at his offices. So but there's been uh, myself and some of his colleagues uh, sort of just trying to sort of help tidy up some of the things that are there and bits and pieces. And, right. and we've all been given and bequeathed a few bits and artifacts of his uh, of his career one of the things i've been fortunate enough to be given is the is the chair that he sat on through a lot of his career which will not mean a lot to a lot of people but of course it's the chair that i used to always sit in every day he was sitting in whenever i would go in and have a, <laughs> a meeting or a discussion with him and it's the chair where i think quite a lot of well the elbows on it are very worn down because i think there was a lot of elbow leaning as he was reading many of those great plays that subsequently <laughs> went on to being, being produced and uh and of course those things like those those chairs those little artifacts that that yeah that they mean so much i think to the people who've had those connections if you are involved yeah. with or you're immersed yeah. in it uh you know it doesn't necessarily mean so much to somebody else but they're they're important connections they're the sort of sometimes that one step removed i always th think that you know like when you go to um the british library and you can see things that maybe shakespeare's signed or something like that right on display it's that one step you know as you as you mentioned it was very sentimental to you but i mean when you look back and think of it michael codron discovered some of the biggest names in the latter half of the 20th century in the uk i mean harold pinter I mean, Michael's Michael's writers that come out through that period. I mean, let's just think about some. So Harold Pinton. So Michael produced, you know, um, The Caretaker and The Birthday Party. Birthday Ooh. Party, of course, was a famous, a famous flop 
when it first got put on stage. Of course it um, was, yeah. <laughs> I think it ran for something like five performances at the Lyric Hammersmith. So when yep. we're talking, it really was a sizable, sizable flop. Um, and then, uh, so we've got Alan Bennett, uh, Tom Stoppard, Michael Frayne, of course, he produced the, the great production of Noises Off, which was one of his big, big successes. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking about a, a canon of writers that go right the way through, in a way, to some of the West End players of more latter writers, such as Patrick Marbo and, and Closer. Yep, yep. So he's got a very, very good eye for plays. And, and you know, really, he's the man who taught me how to be a theatre producer. Um, I was very fortunate to 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 to, to work for Michael, and um, and then he oh. became sort of mentor my my company when i started and he really taught me about the art of, of reading a play i mean michael's great skill was he used to read the first 25 pages of everything everything that he got sent him which is exactly the same as i do <laughs> you know by 25 pages if you're hooked and if you're hooked you're going to carry on reading it if you're not you're probably going to know it's maybe not the show for you but the important thing about that is it's a very personal thing the connection you make with the play well yeah so i might be looking for something but let's say i read those first 25 pages the play is maybe not quite great but what an amazing new voice and you maybe say this isn't the play i want to do but i need to maybe build a connection with that writer or that 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 composer or something to to just start to see where something might develop and where something comes comes out of it and the most important thing always i think in producing is that art of being able to read a play and i'm i'm actually mm-hmm. amazed often yeah. at how many um how many producers or how many even sometimes artistic directors can't actually read play oh. they have put on as a reading and everything becomes this sort of strange situation where you go in and everyone's doing a play reading and you sit there and you listen to it and you're maybe you're lucky because you've got you know a couple of big major stars doing the reading and then right. you know, the management of the landlords of the theatre say well this is great but you know if I don't know, these two major film stars want to do the play we'll give you a we'll give you a theatre but you're not actually assessing it always in the way that that you should do and actually I think the art of being able to read a play the skill in it is actually an, an incredibly important craft. For, for 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 learning, I think if anyone's listening who who wants to, mm-hmm. to work in theatre or, or wants to be a producer or wants to be in really anything in the theatre in terms of of, of of how it works, understanding how plays work and understanding yeah. how to read a play is actually one of the really biggest skills, I suppose, in in wanting to work in in, in this industry and and, right. and 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 actually reading lots of plays. I mean, I I didn't come from a, a theatre family and I grew up in a very rural part of, of the UK where theatre wasn't the most accessible. We were very lucky that we had a really great local regional theatre called the Norwich Theatre Royal. But I learned my plays from going every Saturday morning to the library opposite it and reading plays that were at the Norwich Library. Mm-hmm. And basically that gave me the creative foundation of my you know, foundation of my creative life. I think I probably drove the librarians crazy because I got more and more interested. I go and say, you know, give me everything you've got on, I don't know, Polish theatre. Give me everything you've got on, you know, uh, Harold Pinter. And so, of course, I'd be having these books. And uh, But actually, when I look back at it, it was incredibly formulative to me because it taught me I learned, I like lots of different things. This is to me, I mean, a, a separate but brief tangent is what annoys me a lot about um, about the world of Spotify and things we do now. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is that often when you meet drama students, they they come with a certain song to perform. Yeah. But they haven't listened to the whole arc of how that album works. Yes. Which is actually a digital and Spotify album in your nature. When you listen to a lot of albums, like pop albums, if you listen to someone like I don't know, David Bowie or you listen to a lot of those great recording artists, they're, they're, their albums are constructed in a certain way. So they project a tra- trajectory of journey when you go through the album listening to it. 
But now we live in actually an ecology because of Spotify, where certain songs just get lifted and you download maybe one song you like, but you don't see right. by the whole album. Right. There's an algorithm that pairs you to a song. Yeah. It's the same with cabaret. It's the same with musicals. You actually have to listen to sometimes the, you will do, you need to listen to the entire album to understand how does this frame together. So if you just come in and, you know, I don't know, perform memory from cats uh, and in an audition, you need to really understand what you're singing and, and, and how does that show joy and how does it correlate and how does it make sense? And, and to me, it's an enormous bugbear. But I mean, again, it's, it's like plays. It's understanding how something works yeah. and, and going out and finding things out and, and, and not recognising that just everything on Wikipedia is not necessarily the fact. You know, sometimes going to your library or going to find things out is actually part of the excitement and enjoyment of better life in the theatre. Well, uh, Richard, that's a wonderful place to jump off. <laughs> For the topic we we're going to jump off a cliff and see where we land, Aaron. Oh, again, I'm looking forward. I mean, to it. I'm, I was kind of going, okay, we're we're talking about Michael Codron and going into semi-retirement, and you know, I, I mean, uh, no disrespect to Michael, but you know, kind of like out with the old, in with the new. Um, you're going to well, know... always said a life in the theater is all about what you're doing next. Another golden rule. <laughs> <of theater>. <laughs> well, um, I'm going to start with a bit of a quote. It is uh, probably, uh, you know, as I as I like to do, I start with something of a question, but it is a quote from a review of a recent musical. Like I said, you're going to know exactly what we're going to be talking about right away. Um, here we go. Quote. So just how do you define the phenomenon known as K-pop? <laughs> okay. Or, for that matter, the new multi-stranded, multi-chambered, immersive performance piece called K-pop, which occupies two floors of a building in Hell's Kitchen, end quote. So how do you define K-pop? <laughs> well, I think it is what it is, probably. I mean, there's a certain audience that, uh, that that's going to pick up on a show like that, just as they, uh -huh. just as they have done over the, over the years of other, of, other, of other shows. But it didn't last very long, did it, I think? No, no. And that is exactly what we're going to talk about today. We are going to do a bit of a postmortem on K-pop the musical. So was it a show before its time? Oh. Or was it just a Dutch show? You know, there's your, there's your question. I Well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to tell you a bit of the history of it. But, uh, you know, your experience in the business uh, might uh, offer a lot of ideas as to why it only enjoyed literally 17 performances on Broadway. It was at which then it was at Circle in the Square, wasn't it? If I'm correct, it was at Circle in the Square. Yep. wasn't the wasn't the biggest flop at Circle in the Square. The biggest flop at Circle in the Square is a musical called Glory Days. Oh, really? Glory Days opening closed on its opening night. It was about two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten. Now I'll, I'll just say because it's an interesting point because we'll come back because there was a link here possibly to K-pop. Yeah. Glory Days was a show that began in Washington and transferred in, and yep. it was yep. a, a disaster. Although they did release a cast album of it. Roll yeah. on. It's been widely and actively produced in quite a lot of other theatres and places all over the country. Right. Uh, all over the world, actually, including in South Korea, where they've just had quite a successful production. Because it's a bit of a boy band sort of musical. And so oh, you know, it's interesting okay. that here's a huge flop. And it was a gargantuan flop. Oof. But actually, strangely, has, has found has found a life and a legacy, much in the way that Carrie has done. If you talk to right. young students now, people are absolutely obsessed with Carrie. I mean, Riverdale you know, gave it his own episode. Although, yes. in fairness... To Glory Days, and I suspect K-pop, um, Carrie is actually a, a, a superior score that, that just yes. had the wrong, just had the wrong production and the wrong treatment to it. And actually, it's been quite good to go back and rediscover. Yeah, what? I don't know. There's going to be a lot we're going to talk about with this one, and and I just. You know, when you go back and look at something, you're like, oh, you could have turned left here when you turned right. You know, it's just something that where did this just dysfunction? 
Okay. So the words that I quoted just a moment ago, those are the words that opened famous New York Times critic Ben Brantley's review of a theatrical experience in 2017, simply known as K-pop. As Brantley suggests, the piece is meant to be both unique to the individual audience member, and it all centers around the musical genre of South Korean pop music, better known as K-pop, which has become a global phenomenon. So before I get into <laughs> the actual experience... We have to have something of a general understanding of K-pop as a genre, because for those of us who don't have any idea about it, this might have been another problem of its inception on Broadway. <laughs> but this is uh, this is my uh, brief, brief history of K-pop to the best of my understanding. And this is one of those things where I'm just going to invite people to send me hate mail. Uh, and tell me that I was completely wrong because I have a feeling I'm going to gloss over things. And and to those of you who are going to write me, I won't go into the major players of K-pop because it's kind of like any sport. You have your favorites and they are decidedly your favorites and you can't be dissuaded otherwise. So I'm not even going to try. But from what I understand, just about any of those major players have contributed to the evolution of the genre in diverse and similar ways. The common thread is that all K-pop artists come from a very meticulous system of music production that is meant to be a method of producing the perfect pop sound and songs that fit their exact moment in time using tools from almost every popular music genre, synth pop, electronica, hip hop, metal, dance music, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So anything that's popular, put it in the blender. We have K-pop. That's quite a good analogy, I think, of it. It is a, a genre that isn't really like any other when you sit down and... and no. And some of it's quite, quite enjoyable. Some of it's very, very bizarre. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I've been to South Korea a couple of times with different productions, and I mm -hmm. love South Korea. I think it's a fantastic, fantastic country to visit. But it mm -hmm. is also quite a baffling place when you're there as well. And uh, <laughs> well, and just the high-tech you know, style of it all. I mean, I think oh, man. South Korea, if I remember, South Korea, if I remember, I think has more television channels than anywhere else in the world. <laughs> and when I, when I was there, it was a few years ago, one of the biggest shows that was on South Korean TV was a guy who sort of sat in a sort of rather weird military hat, sort of like in a sort of funky outfit and cooked his dinner and ate his dinner talking to the television and people all over South Korea, this was his show at six o'clock in the evening and people That's all over show. South Korea cooked their, cooked their meals and, and, and ate their tea watching this guy eating his tea. And that was basically the nature of the show. He bought his own channel and this show was absolutely colossal in, 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 in South Korea, certainly at the time when I was out there. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little, it's a little, it's a little weird. I mean, <sighs> you know, K-pop's the thing really, but you, uh, you, you know, it's a bit like Marmite. You're either going to love it or you hate it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So getting back to a history of this, since South Korea revised its democratic government in 1987 and gradually became a society that honored self-expression, like you were saying, with the ubiquity of television channels, K-pop has been something of a method for South Korea to strategically place itself as a relevant player in world culture with music. And this music is very carefully crafted. Like I was kind of hinting earlier, as though it's assembled in a lab, K-pop has somewhat scientifically identified all of the elements of what is considered cool and modern in the current time. And, and, and I'm, I'm probably totally wrong on this too, but it doesn't seem to push a lot of buttons. It just is more inviting to everybody 
I mean, I think, I don't know if it's K-pop, but I think obviously the big South Korean hit that probably people may have heard of is that song Gangnam Style. Oh, yeah, everybody loved which, that. Yeah. Which was a show, that, and actually, you know, funny enough, it's it's the sort of show that, the song that you could actually play, I guess, in an, an old people's home, and they could all sit around doing the exercises when they were doing that, or you could put it on at a kid's birthday party, and actually mm-hmm. they'd have fun dancing to it. And actually, it's, it's quite a good representation maybe of what perhaps is South Korean genres at times where there is right. this accessibility to the music which is quite interesting but but sometimes that that broadness doesn't create this this specification that you sometimes need for right. as a result. <laughs> and it's funny you mentioned that now that I think about that uh, when it became so huge I remember people like would go and find the translation of it and and the guy Sai PSY uh wrote that as kind of a parody to write probably the worst song he could ever write. And, and it became this huge global phenomenon and the lyrics are incredibly dirty from what I understand. So, uh, (laughs) so it was kind of a, an infiltrative joke on a lot of levels, but the funny thing that I I think that about K-pop is it evolves very quickly as time goes on. It's a genre that has been able to blur language barriers in efforts to unite people of all tribes and nations. Often, when it's heard on American radio and streaming platforms, it's a mixture of both Korean and English languages. In fact, I think there was something I read where there was a boy band that was specifically designed to speak both Korean and Mandarin so it could start to improve relations amongst those cultures. And I mean, actually, it's very important to just talk for a second about Korea's theater economy, because without South Korea now, um, Broadway would be in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Their position in the global theater scene is is now more significant than Japan. Japan used to be the very big uh, producer of a lot of Western musicals and different shows. Yep. Uh, South Korea's uh, certainly taken that over. If you go to Seoul, it's it's theater land is, is 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 largely as big as the West End. Yeah. And people like David Mamet, Arthur Miller um, are are very big you know playwrights over there. Um, the Mousetrap just had quite a successful production that's played over there. So you've got right. quite traditional work. Alongside that, you've got sort of some of those rather crazy, rather bizarre South Korean shows where they sort of, I don't know, set up a show where they're set in a kitchen, like a sort of kitchen physical show, and they're all throwing knives at each other and that sort of thing. So you've got, <laughs> you've got like, you've got like complete extremes of different stuff, but they have got now a very burgeoning, uh, musical theater economy. And, uh, yeah. and certainly things like K-pop are quite an influence in some of the, the, the genre of that writing that's coming through as well. What's interesting, a lot of the K-pop stars have gone into these shows. Oh, yeah. And so they've actually found this quite interesting fusion between pop and um, and, and musical theatre, which has been you know, very, very successful. Well, that actually is a really nice transition into where what I'm going to be talking about just next, because the whole K-pop thing is really just about how cool it is to be South Korean. You know, that's the image we want to present, and that South Koreans can be cool anywhere. But that has a shelf life. You know, they can maybe get to about 28 or 29, but then they can't be pop stars anymore. That's just kind of how this thing goes. I mean, it's the create the creation of the music itself is almost as important as the creation of the performers. And here's a longer quote I found from Vox on the history of the genre. Here we go. Quote. 
Through highly competitive auditions starting around ages 10 to 12, music studios induct talented children into the K-pop regimen. The children attend special schools where they take specialized singing and dancing lessons. They learn how to moderate their public behavior and prepare for life as a pop star. They spend hours in daily rehearsals and perform in weekend music shows as well as special group performances. Through these performances, lucky kids can gain fan followings before they even officially air quotes debut. And when they're old enough, if they really if they're really one of the lucky few, the studios will place them into an idol group or even occasionally launch them as a solo artist, end quote. And also, there's a very important thing to, to understand here with the windows of time is that there was national service still in South Korea. Yes. So yes. you have a point where suddenly those young people will go off to do their national service and effectively it can curtail suddenly a pop career. Right. It's quite an interesting moment. And when they come out of national service, obviously, you know, they, they're they effectively now living as adults. It's a sort of passage of moment where things have changed. Right. Um, and and do, you, do you know how long that service is? I believe it's two years, but I could two be, years. Yeah. I could be, I could be wrong on that. It's a year, certainly a year, or, or it might be a year, or it might be two years. And of course, I think there was a, a quite famous K-pop boy band where it's just famously one of the one of the members has just gone off to do his national service. They were working out whether they were going to get an exemption um, because they've been quite globally successful. But actually oh, wow. the government has said no, and I think he's just gone off to have his first his first national service. And then the others, the other performers who are a bit younger than him, will all have to to go at certain points. So effectively, that that band becomes redundant because you know if you're yeah. a five piece band and you've got a, you're missing a, a member each time, you're you're either going to have to go out as solo artists or possibly that will be the end of that that group. So one of the more popular traits of a K-pop group is the outward appearance of assembling a dissociated and diverse group of air quotes characters all brought together by this style of music. So, you know, you've got your prissy rich girls and you've got your bad girls and you've got, um, you know, the one, the tomboys or whatever, and they're all brought together and they're thrown into a group and and they all can do K-pop and then the dance and stuff together. Uh, and, and speaking of that, plus, I just have to say the choreography is phenomenal. Somehow simultaneously fusing breakdancing, hip hop and modern dance, it is synchronized dancing at its finest. And remember, these are often groups of musicians and, and their dance numbers look as though they were all cloned from the same source, but are somehow different people. So for the better part of the last two decades, K-pop has become part of any Korean child's upbringing to be an essential part of culture and decorum. I mean, in some ways, it's rather nice that music brings all those people together. Yeah. Because actually yeah. there's this uniformity. And as you say, you're absolutely right. When you watch K-pop, if, you, if, if any people are listening who've never watched a K-pop uh, performance, the dancing, I mean, just go on YouTube and just Google some of it. Oh. It is absolutely phenomenal. And, and you do say... How on earth can someone do that? Because it's 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 incredible in the the physicality and the demand. I mean, it's you've got to have athletic ability to be able to right. deliver this, and the discipline to it is is extraordinary. But of course, what is amazing is that you know you can watch a, a South Korean school playground and things like that, and the kids are also emulating these people. And yeah. what's rather nice is that you know music is bringing that community together and right. that accessibility. And I think that's something that's pretty fun. I think it's also interesting about the characters because the characters are, in a way, they're a bit like sort of quite manga in a way with the sort of comic style characters because they've got sort of quite extreme, almost quite pantomimic types yes. of characters. <laughs> As of 2018, the production of K-pop was a $5 billion industry. 
Here, I'm going to give you a couple more stats. I've got to mention them just because they're the they're the ones. The biggest K-pop band out there right now is the boy band BTS. The group has broken so many sales records in just the last few years alone that their achievements are in the same league as global superstar musicians Michael Jackson and the Beatles. I, I love this one because I remembered seeing it in Sheridan, Wyoming. Beginning on May 26, 2021, McDonald's restaurants launched the BTS Happy Meal, which consisted of, quote, 10-piece chicken McNuggets, medium fries and a medium Coke, complete with sweet chili and Cajun dipping sauces inspired by popular McDonald's South Korea recipes. This went live in 50 countries. It's amazing. And I think BTS, <laughs> it might be the group where I think the, uh, the young man in that has just gone off. The that's that's the one. Yeah, yeah I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. I know there was a lot of uh, tears from young fans in Korea. I can remember watching on the news when it was being announced. Uh, you know, that oh, I'm sure. Lots of tears and, and, and so on. And I think he, the guy had gone and got quite floppy hair and he's just had it all, all shaved off. So oh, no. all going on as he, as he started his, his, his time, really. So black market, you could uh, get to that barber shop and sweep those up and put them in a bag. Probably, and sell them I mean, there's market. probably someone. There's probably <laughs> someone who's already already done that. You know. <laughs> so I mean, if I haven't painted enough of a picture of how big K-pop is in global culture, I'll give it this metaphor: If K-pop was a sport, it would be soccer, or as the world, most of the rest of the world knows it, football. And I'll also use that metaphor to suggest just how popular it was worldwide in 2017 but had not yet been able to infiltrate American culture to the degree that it had almost everywhere else. So, okay, history aside, we know what K-pop is. Let's go back to 2017 and this New York Times review from Ben Brantley and the very appropriately named K-pop the Musical Experience. And just to be clear, I have never seen this production in any form. Richard, did you get to see this in any form at all? I didn't. No? Okay. So... Anything we're talking about is based on research and hearsay. Again, listeners, if you got to see it and I'm telling you something wrong, please let me know. As suggested in Brantley's opening to this review of the show, it was a multi-room, multi-level, immersive theater experience. Once an audience member was in the building, they are now considered with their ticket to be a talent scout, getting ready to promote and vote for the next big K-pop sensation, be it a group or an individual. So this show that's on display is the latest slew of offerings from the fictional JTM Entertainment, a K-pop production studio trying to make the next big acts that they'll be able to push onto American markets. The end result should be an experience of the art form from a number of perspectives, as it's something of a self-guided tour. And if you listen carefully, you'll pick up on a number of different narratives that you can follow from room to room, even though there's a full soundtrack and there's a full list of songs, you get to know the characters and you see how what they do in one room affects what they do in another room. Here are some of the characters you'd meet, and I bring these up just because the names are fun. Members of the five-member boy band Fate, spelled F and the number eight, Fate. Members of the six-member girl group Special K. Longtime favorite solo artist Mui, spelled M-W-E. <laughs> the uh, vocal coach Yasmin, the choreographer Jen, who both have the compassion of American drill sergeants. And this is a great one. I love that this is a, a main character in this whole thing. You get to meet Dr. Park, the company's in-house plastic surgeon. <laughs> well, that's because, as you probably know, plastic surgery is a very big thing in South Korea. Oh, yeah. And it's, 
it's actually to do with the Western nose that a lot of young women look at that and think about the, um, you know, the, 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 the surgery that was, which is a shame because I mean, you know, South Korean, uh, you know, people are, are very handsome and attractive oh, people, but that, absolutely. that's, um, that, uh, you know, desire to, to sort of in some ways look at Western culture and things sits and, and it's, it's prevalent in, in other Asian countries as well. Right. So from this experience, on the positive side, the audience should see the incredible product with literally decades of work to be brought to this moment in the in the creation of this form of K-pop in front of you right now. On the negative side, the audience sees a show that, quote, also addressed themes of xenophobia, racism, and child labor, end quote. <laughs> it was one of the most nominated theatrical performances of 2017, and it was obvious that because of that, the next step would be Broadway. And I'll tease this a bit, but it's also culturally significant in that when it made its big break to Broadway in 2022, it was the first musical on Broadway written by a female Asian composer. Helen Park wrote the music. Her writing partner, Max Vernon, wrote the lyrics, but the book was also written by an Asian uh, artist, Jason Kim. And from what I understand, when it went to Broadway, it had this huge representation of... Korean, Korean-American, AAPI uh, uh, artists, both on stage and backstage and and in the production team. So it was a really significant thing for Asian cultures to be able to put this up on Broadway. It represents something quite important because, of course, we're going to an area now with, with Broadway, particularly coming out of, of BLM, which has made people stop and sort of think and I think about diversity and representation of the arts and theatre in general. And of course, oh, Broadway, man. I think, has seen a lot of that in this last season with a number of its productions that have been, you know, coming on stage and giving new voice and, and, and new workforce forces coming in who've who've been getting those opportunities to to, to be embraced into the Broadway community in a, in, in a way that they should be. And right. I think, you know, here was a show that was actually quite important because obviously, you know, Asian representation has at times not always been as as, as strong as it should have been or as, as been misguided. I mean, most famously with the, the Miss Saigon debacle, which of course began mm. right back in you know with, with with Jonathan Price and 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 what happened there at that particular point. And of course David Henry Huang wrote a very powerful play after that called Yellow Face, which is uh, an interesting yeah. play. Yeah. Was that whole 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 show with, with B.D. Wong, I think, who did the original production of that. And yeah. um, you know, so so there's always been a underrepresentation on its stages. And uh it's um it 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 was a very important show, I think, to have to have tried to address that in some ways with this, right. this right. work. Yeah. But I guess I'll have to suggest that in 2017 popularity of k-pop in american markets was not as popular it was more of kind of like kind of convention level you know you have your yeah. very very serious fans who when they hear that's that an event is getting close to them they're gonna throw you know their entire schedule out the window and go you know you're looking at a tourist ticket you know a lot of tours come to, to new york so your target audience possibly isn't entirely necessarily going for the american audience or obviously you are going for an american korean audience who you think will probably come yeah you know you, you've got a few challenges as to work out where you are with the genre because as i right. say I, I can listen to a few k-pop tracks but i i don't know that i'd be able to sit down and listen to an entire album in one sitting necessarily see and there's there's your i read the first 25 pages and i'm yeah. not hooked there's right? your question yeah although i have to say that you sit and watch some of that dancing and you are captivated for that period oh my god yeah well and and the costuming and the hair and the light show yeah. and it, it is a huge spectacle to watch yeah, I mean, the trick with those shows almost is that they come at you so fast there isn't time to breathe. Yeah. That's sometimes, and, and I'm not saying that K-pop is is that, but the speed of a show can be like, I'm just going to try and blindside you. 
So I've yeah. been into blindside with all this. And actually, sometimes a lot of a lot of dance routines and things can actually mitigate what's the most important thing of a musical, which is its book. Because if you haven't got the foundation of the book there, then you're kind of scuppered to start with, really. Yeah, I think I think we're heading into okay. So from the uh, off Broadway huge hit, which had people coming back for multiple performances and cosplaying as characters in the show and attending several times to its Broadway run. Why did it close in 17 performances? I mean, honestly, the the off Broadway run was about eight weeks long, but I mean, it was a, an immersive thing. Once you went to it, you've seen it. And, you know, uh, I mean, you might get a different experience of it by going back several different times and maybe starting in a different room or taking a different path or something like that. But it's still at the end of the night, you get kind of the same general idea. So from the 2017 off-Broadway product to the move to Broadway in 2021 that they attempted, but thank you, COVID, uh, didn't allow that yeah. to happen. They got it ready for 2022. Here's the thing, though, that happened with the K-pop genre. It finally actually infiltrated American markets as far as music was concerned. So even in my little town of Sheridan, Wyoming, you could turn on the radio on your morning drive and hear K-pop music. I think uh, the the stat that I saw about BTS was on the Billboard Hot 100, they hit it six times in a year with a number one hit, which was faster than the Beatles. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. you know, it's it's here. It's here. So, and of course, the Beatles didn't have download. And it sounds like uh, YouTube helped that out a lot because it was like, you know, if you listen to one song, then it's the BTS music video is the next thing in your queue just by the suggestion. You should watch this. Yeah. So, yeah, there's this huge, massive change in how prolific K-pop had become. And, and then there was this huge world changing event called COVID that reshaped how much of the world conducts business and the theater world is no different. So an out of town tryout was planned in D.C. Uh, in 2021. COVID prevented it from happening. So they're like, heck, let's just take this right to Broadway. So they didn't get to get that out-of-town response that they might have otherwise gotten with this new uh, script that they wrote. And I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. But the show opened, as we said, at the Circle in the Square Theater on November 27th, 2022, after 44 previews and a delayed opening due to another COVID outbreak in the cast. The show closed on December 11th, after only 17 performances. And it's not, if, if listeners uh, uh, know it, it's not the biggest theater circle in the square either. No, it's not. So we're not talking about a large a large auditorium. It's actually quite a, a small a small house on, on one of the, the smallest, I think, almost, or one of them. I, I'll just go ahead and declare it here. These are my takes on the big mistakes between 2017 and 2022, and you have hit on the very first one that I had. Staging at the Circle in the Square in a thrust setting. So for my listeners that don't know, Circle in the Square is generally designed to be in, in the round theater. And I looked it up. It's somewhere between 650 to 776 seats regularly for an in the round setting. And I don't know what the seating capacity was for K-pop, but they had to take one side of that house out to um, what they did was they uh, they made it more like a concert experience so uh, for my listeners who are un unfamiliar with what a thrust setting is it's where the audience is seated on three sides but diminishing just how many seats you could have i mean i have to say just to circle on to circle on the square for a second is that uh it's thrust format's not uncommon so oklahoma mm -hmm. uh played in that oh, format right. rocky horror show that was there for a couple of years played in that i have a i have a feeling i can't remember if once on this island did or didn't in that format so it's not mm -hmm. an uncommon shape for them to play in but 
for dance, yeah, the things I when I've watched K-pop on stage and it being performed in on it actually needs quite a wide stage, and I think it's actually best served end on. To be honest, I think that was one of the creative decisions that was made, yeah. where they went, let's try to make it a more like a concert experience, which the Broadway audience might not be wanting to see. They might be wanting that fairly traditional audience that's on one side, performance happens on the other. Yeah, you also got up against another very very big dance heavy show at the moment on broadway which is mj the musical yep which is just playing around the corner which if you go in and see that show it's literally from the second they push the button until when it stops it is non-stop dance i mean it's it's directed mm-hmm. by a, a, a choreographer so it's um it doesn't i mean we're talking about shows not not letting go and, and that show is really a, a, a two-hour big dance concert extravaganza really you don't have masses about Michael Jackson's life in that show. It's no. really about him preparing to do preparing to do the performance of Thriller. Yeah. Uh that he is, is in the rehearsal studio rehearsing it. But it is pulsating to watch with the dance. Mm-hmm. So immediately, big end on space, and you've got K-pop kind of playing a little bit as its sort of second cousin to that, really, in a way, being in a slightly smaller theatre. Well, I mean, when I when you think about it, there are a couple of questions I bring up with that. But one, as it relates to MJ, you've got American audiences who know Michael Jackson more. Yeah, but also the other difference, we come back to the same thing, is you'd probably be quite happy to listen to an evening of Michael Jackson's hits because of the very variation yeah. to them. K-pop, as I say, it is it is quite unrelenting when you listen to it. So, <laughs> in a sense, you know, you you have to be prepared that that's your that's your night. And and in a way, MJ works because it stems in a lot of different generations because his music's gone through so many years. Right. Whereas we're still dealing with what's a comparatively new genre of music with with, mm-hmm. with K-pop, and that's you know gonna gonna present still a minority audience in some ways to its listenership. Right. But I have to say, K-pop probably would have had, you know, some 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 additional costs because because Circle and Square is indeed a Broadway house. Yeah, yeah. The reason they want to be on a Broadway house is it'll make them eligible for the Tony Awards. Yep. And I would think, based on the show, there is a very good chance, even regardless of its short uh, appearance, that it could get a nomination in choreography. I, I would suggest that. I would suggest the costuming. We'll talk about it later, but, uh, you know, it, it is primarily spectacle. So you've got huge sound, huge lights. The music is run by like three people pressing buttons on a board. <laughs> so, you know. so Here we sit with an important point about a lot of these shows that come along. Let's just take a moment to just reflect on probably the mo- one of the most produced composers on Broadway, who's had probably more flops than anyone on Broadway that one can think of which is uh, Frank Wildhorn. Oh, yeah, yes. And Frank Wildhorn of Jekyll and Hyde and Wonderland mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, Scarlet Pimpernel and all of those shows is consistently produced on Broadway. And yet a large number of those shows have failed. Jekyll and Hyde had a bit more of a run. And, of course, we, we have to thank Frank Wildhorn because, in a sense, it's what gave David Hasselhoff his career again because he came yeah. back and starred in Broadway. But parking all of that to one side, these shows open, they don't run. But Wildhorn is now probably the biggest Western composer in a large part of Europe and if not Asia. So, you know, Jekyll and Hyde, enormous, enormous hit in Korea and Japan. You know, you go across Germany, Frank Wildhorn's musicals are widely widely produced before the, the Russian Federation war with Ukraine. Yep. Massive in Russia. You know, he has written strategically now for countries where he hasn't even premiered in, in the US with work. Therefore, why come to Broadway and put a show on for it to flop? Well, the fact about it is it's it's actually regardless of that, because actually you can lift that and say it's come direct from Broadway. The flop part doesn't matter. His name is is a strong element to that. 
maybe right. he might pick up a Tony somewhere. Maybe it might get an orchestration Tony or something that they can put, you know, the Tony nominated musical. All of that right. sells in another territory. So why we're oh. saying that the Tony Award becomes important for them to be in, doing K-pop on Broadway as opposed to, say, doing it in a, an off-Broadway house is that if, as we think, that show probably will have with K-pop, a very large audience in South Korea, which will probably recoup all its money back that it lost on Broadway and, indeed, other Asian markets where it goes to and, indeed, elsewhere, um, the, if it gets a Tony nomination now for choreography, Maybe it might even win it if the choreography is that fantastic. Right. But to actually see that as a marketing exercise on a poster becomes a very strong carrot in a lot of other places because Broadway yes. still has okay. the stamp of this show has been on Broadway. It's a the, the flop doesn't doesn't suddenly start to come into it because right. the brand is actually what's what's the and and, and in, all, in all honesty, you know, a Ben Brantley review or a negative review of the New York Times, this audience isn't reading that paper. No, they're not. Or, no. They're influenced by what other people say. So, you know, if there is a pocket of K-pop fans who come out and say, this is celebrity K-pop fans who say, this is the best thing I've ever seen, they're mm -hmm. going to be more drawn to them than anything else. You know, we're in an interesting zone because then you start to say, well, it's Broadway, therefore, just serving as a bit of a, of a, of a sort of branding tool to move it somewhere else. It's, but, it's just a springboard. Yeah. But they're not the first to do it. As I say, let's go back to, to Frank Wildhorn's musicals and mm -hmm. look to the fact of how many go why do they happen? But then look at how they're licensed over America, over the world. And if you've been the producer who's put that show up, don't forget you're probably then owning the licensing rights as the originating producer afterwards. So after that, you're going to be collecting a nice royalty for quite a good number of years. You've probably right. got royalties coming back on cast recordings <laughs> and all sorts of stuff. And so, you know, Frank Wildhorn has made a lot of money for a lot of uh, a lot of Broadway investors and people, even if their venture onto Broadway itself is possibly flopped. And you know, yeah, I think with K-pop, yeah. we will see probably the similar thing replicated. Oh, I, I, yeah, I'm definitely expecting it to pop up in other markets. Obviously, going back to like a homecoming uh, tour in in Seoul. Yeah. So it's um, not a flop. The interesting mm -hmm. thing about this is it's an exercise into the next territory that you take it to. Well, I mean, the the way that you're saying it, like the next several points I might bring up almost might be moot, but. Uh, it almost is like uh, they set up a plan A, which is obviously a successful longtime Broadway run. But our plan B is all of these other markets who are probably going to enjoy it. Yes. Well, would any of us have thought of that? A Broadway run could have been just another step to financial success, whether it worked out on Broadway or not. Whew. There's a lot more to unwrap here, and Richard gives me a lot more wonderful ideas to mull over, so stick with us. But as you're listening to the rest, go check out our Instagram feeds. Both Trident Theater and Euripides Humanities have their own pages. Plus, I have links to everything on Trident's website, tridenttheater.com. Oh, and don't forget, I spelled theater with a T-R-E at the end. Connect with me. I'd love to hear from you. Oh, and rate and review this show wherever you're listening. It really does help the show out. Speaking of the show, let's get back to it. The conclusion of the postmortem of K-pop the musical. <laughs> Well, okay, so I'll get to my next point. You know, after what we just said here, uh, I mean, we've got some very practical business reasons why it might have been an acceptable loss. But coming from a let's contribute to the world of Broadway and the world theater market, uh, I, I, the next point I would say is the move from being an immersive project to a traditional theater project. Um, it's kind of difficult to retain that magic, in my opinion. 
Yeah, it's certainly a very interesting and unusual transition to be making. Yeah. But you think uh, that maybe actually you'd want to sort of just scrap that project and say we've done that, so now we're going to set it up in a in in a different way. So it's almost like I've got to go back to the drawing board and, and it's almost like two different entities that go on. It feels a bit like you're trying to fit a, a square pin in a round plug in some way. Yes. We're trying to do that. So that that's unusual, but it, it does make it feel in some ways like it's coming to it with people who perhaps from a genre that are not as experienced in putting musical theater on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were all, I would say they were all pretty new as far as the Broadway market. They were deeply immersed in musical theater. The danger is they can all then become like they're experts. And that's also dangerous because, you know, it's not to say this is what happened, but you can look at what is the brand and be fairly confident that you're going to have a hit. Yeah, 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 yeah. And actually you can start to say, well, maybe the story, you know, that's this bit of the book's not so important or it doesn't. And actually the, the storyline becomes a bit silly, perhaps. Well, I just think of the the individual uh, effect of that immersive theater project and why people would come back again and again and again. And taking it directly to Broadway, they took a lot of that individual element out of it and tried to shoehorn an individual and experience into a group experience. So what happened with this, uh, and you know, this might be another thing where people correct me, but what it sounds like is when you went to Broadway and you got your ticket, you were given a wristband. It's one of two colors and you were now divided into two different scouting teams. So instead of being an individual scout on your own, now you're part of a team and you get to vote very similar to like, uh, you know, uh, Britain's got talent or something like that. And, and maybe we'll get this, the, this team up to the next, next level. And it's all written. So it's going to go in a certain way anyway, but yeah, I mean, it was just a different method of communication between the audience and the performers. So I, I, you know, I, I think it was a fairly, I, I hesitate the word ingenious method of moving an immersive experience into a more traditional experience, but I just think some of that magic was lost. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And 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 sometimes you can end up in those elements trying a bit too hard. Mm-hmm. And actually they can they can feel a bit weak that the, the, the elements that were quite special don't don't suddenly match up. Because I mean obviously the, the part of an immersive experience is the fact that it's this immersive thing going on around you. Yes. So when you're so catapulted into this, it can sometimes mask some of the other flaws because you're so zoned mm-hmm. out by what you're watching, what's just going on going on around you. Yeah. And, you know, if it's moving at, as it sounds, a reasonable pace, even as an immersive show, you perhaps don't notice those flaws. But when right. you're sat in the show, you're going to realize probably very quickly within the first five, six minutes, whether you're going to enjoy this show. And, you know, <laughs> 10 minutes in, if the book's not going anywhere, you're going to be looking at your watch saying, oh, how much longer is there to go on with this possibly? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's not transitioning. Whereas if you think about an immersive show, you're transitioning through it all the time. So if you don't like this moment, you're moving on to something else. But actually, in a way, with an immersive show, you're sort of yourself in charge of your own destiny. Yeah, yes. Inside a theatre, you're giving someone else the map and you're, you know, you're following it and you're taking the route and you're going where they take you. But you are captive in a way, in a a way that's not necessarily the same in an immersive show. I mean, immersive shows are very difficult to get right. I've done a few of them myself. And, you know, Mm -hmm. how you navigate a show and how you guide it through, there are hardest things to to succeed and and, and make work. Right. But you, of course, have a constant flow through an immersive show. When you translate that idea into a theatre, by its very nature of being sat there watching, you have not created the environment. So suddenly 
every yeah, weakness yeah. that's on that stage that isn't so strong is going to is going to show up. Yeah, the voting it, it sounds interesting, but again, it, it sounds like it could become quite quite repetitive. It sounds like something that's, that's quite fun to do maybe once, but once you've mm-hmm. done it maybe a few times, it doesn't have the same the same level of excitement. And also, you've got to really get the pace going with that because you could also slow the whole the whole journey down with it. You know, right? You, yeah, you have to stop to take the votes and do it again, and you know all that sort of thing. Really, mm-hmm. you know. I think you've got to be careful with gimmicks because gimmicks can get too uh, get too too carried away, you know. I mean, it's uh, it's like that famous show years ago. It was a movie, actually, wasn't it? Which they had. You remember those those things in America where you used to be able to rip off and you could sniff something, and they were like sniff cards. Oh, scratch a sniff, yeah. Things. Scratch a sniff, yeah. So there was a guy who tried to perfect that as a movie years ago, in I think the seventies. You had the idea. Oh that God, I remember scratch that. And snip, scratch and sniff at the cinema, and so yeah. they'd have a sequence, and then. You'd, do it up and do it. Of course, an unmitigated disaster because people yeah. just didn't want to go and watch a movie where they were having to do that. They wanted to yeah. just sit and watch a movie and be entertained and <laughs> not, not have to do it. So it was a totally different thing. It didn't, it didn't correlate. And, and no. possibly again, taking an immersive idea or, or asking audiences and then translating that into a theater, it doesn't always work in that same way. No, no. No. And, and I can see it where they're like, you know, the, the original one was kind of the precursor to the big show that we're going to do. And it just, it didn't. Here's, here's the other element though. When you go from the off Broadway one in 2017 to the Broadway version in 2022, like I said, early on in this, the genre evolves and it evolves quickly. So in five years, even through the pandemic, they had to write new songs to match what the genre was doing, but they were still doing it with the same old characters from five years ago. So if you talk about it in perspective of history, and there are a lot of things that, yes, we'd have to take into consideration with this, but, you know, you have people like Elvis Presley and the Beatles performing music at the same time, but before the Beatles were popular, Elvis was popular. So this, it's kind of like asking Elvis to now sing Beatles songs. Yeah, and, and that doesn't really work. It's also holding on to things that you thought quite worked quite well in the immersive show, and saying, "Wow, people mm-hmm. really love that." So we better keep this for the for the main version. I remember there's an expectation that you think people who went to the immersive show will now come and see it on Broadway, and those are the things they really loved. So we need to make sure we keep those because they they worked. But you're dealing with different contexts as well of yeah of of, of where things work and why things work and all that sort of stuff. I don't know if an out of town tryout would have helped this show or not, though, because it's hard to know engage how you how you you know you you test you test that what it might have done is it might have taught them a lot about the space but the yeah. out of town tryout probably would not have been in a three-sided auditorium it would have been in a no. in an end on theater somewhere i mean it feels in many ways that the show needs to be in a big space because the genre yeah. feels quite big and and you know when you watch these routines they really are you know full-on and, and massive yeah way. i mean the other thing you have to think about with this presence of this show on broadway is this is not a bridge and tunnel show, whereas no. actually MJ the musical is. So again, you have <laughs> those bridge and tunnel audience who will come in because they want to see this. Whereas um, K-pop is actually quite a hard sell into some of those markets because yeah. you know you might have a bunch of kids who really love it, but if you're going to come on your bridge and tunnel visit and you're going to bring grandma and you're going to bring you know family over to watch their Broadway show, <laughs> is K-pop going to be on the list of that one that you're going to you're going to choose? You might well opt for something where people feel more familiar with the genre and the music because oh, the same thing this. I would say about K-pop is you do actually have to watch or listen to quite a lot of it to try and find the bits that you connect with yes. because there's such a random hodgepodge to me of different stuff that's going on. 
you actually eventually have to find the artist that kind of sort of you embrace and you sort of like, it's not like discovering a recording artist like you said, I love the Beatles or I love Eric Clapton or I like this and that's the artist I want to follow. Right. Because as you were saying, it's so transient, this music, mm-hmm. that actually it's quite, I mean, BTS is, is interesting because they've established, you, you know, you can see why people follow that, that, that recording, that recording group. But it's, it's actually quite unusual like that because you really have this sort of constant stream because there's so much product being driven at you all the time. Yeah. And it's a very different style of manufactured music in contrast to someone like the Beatles who were often making and writing their own music, of course, and doing that sort of right. thing. These are actually right. quite manufactured songs, a lot of them. Completely and, manufactured. Um, you know, you're sitting yeah. there saying, actually, it's like a, a factory that's, 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 that's turning this out. Mm-hmm. And as I say, that's going to appeal to some people. It's not going to appeal to others. But if you're going to spend your hundred bucks to come to Broadway and you're coming on a family trip, there's yeah. probably other shows where you say actually this might actually serve all our family party than just maybe a couple of kids who really love the street dance elements of it. Well, and and that was something that when the the book writer, the the writers and the uh, director and the producers, when they were asked, so what do you think happened here? And one of the things they said was nobody knows this. I mean, you know, we've just come out of this huge pandemic and people are going to things that are familiar. You know, I mean, you've got at the same time, you've got Music Man, you've got Hamilton, you've got Book of Mormon, you've got Wicked, you've got Lion King. All of these are still running at the same time. I think the most interesting thing is if you look, because I've been following it quite closely, is the theatrical index, which you get each week with the the weekly sales figures of shows. Mm -hmm. So it's just changed slightly and it's a big loss because of course music man's just dropped off the grid which was right. turning in and that was consistently the number one show on broadway mm-hmm. but look at this number one show on broadway was music man it was turning about three million a week okay yeah following after that the number two show has been the phantom of the opera <laughs> which is extraordinary the number three show i think quite frequently has sat there and been often lion king yeah wicked has appeared quite regularly in there and mm-hmm. funny girl Funny so girl. Funny Girl has popped up, you know, week to week quite often. Liam, Liam Michelle is a, is a draw in, a, 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 on the ticket, but we are talking about no new musical of the last right. decade or so. Right. You know, oh, Hamilton, mm-hmm. of course. That's the only one that I would say yeah, is right. there as well. Yeah. That's, that's been on the grid and obviously is a, is a, is a later musical, but we're not talking when we look at it. We're looking at audience. Okay. So look at the audience pattern here. They're going for the familiar stock classics. Yep. And the fact that Phantom of the Opera, when it announced it was closing, which had, had had some rough weeks before then, suddenly catapults and has stayed consistently in the number two position on Broadway, <sighs> makes you realize that that audience is actually being quite select in where they want to spend their money and mm-hmm. what they're choosing to, what they're choosing to go and see. I mean, the fact that, you know, a million dollar differences between Phantom in number two and Music Man consistently in number one certainly suggests that you know the departure of music man leaves quite a big hole on broadway yeah broadway at the minute i think probably does need that big new original hit and yeah. so does the west end you know it's the mm-hmm. sort of hit where people you know when phantom of the opera exploded in the west end and on broadway people camped outside the theater every day with returns lines all day long queuing for tickets every person even if they didn't go to the theater very often knew about the phantom of the opera they heard of that show it was in the news yep. everywhere in a way, recovery now of Broadway, the West, it kind of needs that sort of show to sort of come and be an original hit and, 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 and score some, score some attention. If we've got a chance of building a future for the, for the Broadway industry, but it means that a show like K-pop comes at it in quite a difficult scenario because it's got to dent itself onto Broadway, make a mark, get going. It's fighting against other big hitters. Where does K-pop find its audience? And it, if, 
if all these other large shows are fighting for that ticket, and we're talking about old familiar shows, which are not necessarily all of them doing the business that they, they may have once done, and they're in, a, right. they're in a fight to secure that, you are in a marketplace. And don't forget, what you've got is 650 seats. Yep, You haven't got the same level of break figure that you're trying to hit. So you're, maybe your marketing spend things is perhaps not as big as something like Disney can throw at it uh, or behind it. And it's not as established in the same way. And in a way, it's more specialist in its, it, its, its brand and its, its market. So you, you come to it with quite a lot of challenges. So that actually brings me, I'm going to flip a couple of my points that I think might have been uh, interesting talking points. And the producers, the the book writer, the director, they all kind of said, I'm not sure we got the marketing right. Because they said, you know, we reached out to Asian communities and Korean communities and tried to engage them. But from what they were saying, it seemed like the marketing uh, from a visual perspective just more resembled a K-pop concert rather than a big Broadway show. I think that's true. And I think there's another strand to it, which is incredibly confusing to some audiences who don't know the genre, which is they see South Korean music and therefore think it's being performed in the Korean language. Yes. Sometimes people might associate K-pop again as a, as a is this a non-English language show, right? On, on, on board, and they haven't understood that. So right. when they're looking, they're they're not sure or they're not confident because mm-hmm. that's not been made clear to them in the in the decision of of, of, of marketing and, and branding as well. Well, and there were a couple of other things that were kind of backlash uh, against that. Um, there were some suggestions that said, "Hey, look." We just got to be honest here. A lot of Broadway is marketed to an older, wider audience. And we don't know how to infiltrate a younger Asian audience. Yeah, I think that's that's a very true and and, and clear statement. And also, uh, you know, it's it's expensive for a younger person to spend to come and and buy. buy, Oh, my God. Yeah. I, um, I didn't even see the prices on the tickets, but I mean, I'm looking at tickets this summer. Uh, I'm planning on taking uh, my partner and my boys and we're like, okay, so we're going to have to just go ahead and get ready for $400 on a show. That's just what we got to do. And, and I mean, we're ready to do it, but not everybody is ready to just put that down for uh, a non-established, not an adaptation, completely fully original musical, not a revival. And I think, you know, Younger people haven't necessarily got always that disposable income. The older audience, who are the people who will read the New York Times review and don't think it's for them anyway, are not gonna are not gonna bother. I mean, they 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 will go if it's Hamilton, yeah, and say I'll take a risk on rap and hip hop because we've been told in the paper now that this is good. Yes. So that audience does have a does have some effect by what the papers possibly say in this. It's getting it's different to if it was a Beatles move musical or if it was a a, a, a Queen We Will Rock You musical because. You know, there is a genre of music that they know, and obviously those recording artists or radio DJs who can come and say it's fantastic, they'll listen to. K-pop is actually taking a step into the unknown here, so actually they will look and see what the New York Times suddenly says about it. The younger audience, less so, of course, but the Mm -hmm. other challenge with younger audiences is that they do not book in advance. No, no, they're walk-up. So you end up in a quite last-minute.com kind of culture, you know, which, mm-hmm. which from a producing standpoint is terrifying because you never know when from week <laughs> to week where you're where you're sitting with your advanced with your advanced box office. Right. Um, right. But the culture has shifted as well in a way of, of of booking. And and of course the problem you have now with things like COVID, I think that continues even more so because oh, you yeah. know, do people want to wait because if they're not 
well or they they decide that they you know things might change or a show might if they if they, if they came to broadway the last time and the two shows they were going to both got cancelled because the cast were off sick with covid you might decide that you're not going to take the chance to book as far in advance unless you've got hugh jackman in the show and you can say well you know that's going to be a ticket <laughs> that's going to be better, worth my time because i better pay my hundred bucks for that and then maybe i'll try and see some other stuff on discount well here's an interesting thing that you just kind of brought up is that for the Broadway run, they had at least three internationally known K-pop big stars performing in the show. Uh, one of them being, uh, uh, her name is Luna. It, it was a very neat part about this very talented female solo artist who was getting closer to 30 and starting to realize, am I now becoming irrelevant? And so, I mean, neat storyline, but, you know, if, if it says featuring star name, I don't know, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'd be like, well, I, I guess that's good for them. Yeah. But you're immediately <laughs> having to explain probably who these people are to some. Yep. And that's yep. hard as well, because you want recognition, you know, you want that facial recognition so people know instantly who they are. Yeah, And the thing, what you're dealing with here is that probably for a lot of K-pop fans, they may not necessarily be picking up Broadway leaflets or Broadway posters or looking at, uh, you know, Broadway listings in the same way as, as some of us might all be on playbill.com and things. Right. So you're going to have to market into a music arena as to where these artists are appearing. And then you have another question is, let's take her as a, a very successful recording artist playing a character. But she's still touring and she's still performing. Yeah. So then you say, do I want to pay my hundred bucks to go and watch Luna in a musical, which I might go and see? Or do I want to go and actually see Luna, who's the pop star I like playing live and she's doing Segway Square Gardens or yeah. something in, in her own songs in, in, a, in, um, you know, 10 months time or something like that. Right. So it, maybe if you are a diehard Luna fan, you'll go and see the k-pop show once right but you might not go and see it a second time because actually if you're a diehard fan who likes her music you might like to go and see her as an artist live doing her songs which right. comes to a particular golden rule about when you ever produce a jukebox show if you ah. produce a jukebox show you either need to pick a band that doesn't tour very much or is dead <laughs> Because the simple reason, be and the simple reason being is, you can go through the go through the jukebox genre, yep. and see the majority of the time the most successful jukebox shows of all time. Okay, so Buddy the Musical ran for years in the West End. The only place you could hear Buddy Holly's songs being performed on stage with someone who was the show, Mamma Mia. Okay, well Abba doesn't play very much or tour anymore, so the only place you could see it, other than maybe going to see some sort of tribute act that was going on, was the endorsed. Beyond and Benny Abba musical that was playing in the West End. Yep. We Will Rock You. When We Will Rock You opened, Queen and Freddie Mercury, dead, but Freddie Mercury and Queen were not touring anymore. So yeah. the only place you could see We Will Rock You was on the stage of that of that theatre. The Jersey Boys. Yep. Frankie Valley and the Jersey Boys do not tour anymore. So no. the only place you could see Frankie Valley and the Jersey Boys telling their story at the theatre. So the answer is, if you put a jukebox show on and the band is still very active and alive and touring and doing stuff, mm -hmm. if you are a fan of that music, you want to see the band. Yes. You will go once, but you're not going to be, which is the all-important thing for any Broadway or West End musical, a repeat attender. Yes. So if you take K-pop and you take Luna, 
that's great. You'll probably go and see Luna once, twice maybe if you're lucky. Mm-hmm. But your actual desire is because you like Luna, you want to hear Luna doing Luna's songs. Yeah. So when Luna's next performing, that's what you want to spend your hundred bucks on going to see. And it's probably the same with any of the other big K-pop stars that were playing in that show. Ah, that's amazing. Okay. So I got to go back to something we talked about just a moment ago, where it was, it was a problematic thing that for a, a regular Broadway person to attempt to go to something that they didn't really have their heart set on, uh, they're going to a review, right? If it's in the paper and they say it's good, I'll go to see that, even though it's not my style of music or whatever. Yeah. I suppose you heard about the New York Times review uh, and uh, Jesse Green's review that had some questionable word choices. Have you heard about this? No, tell me a little bit more about it. <laughs> I, I was aware that something came, but I don't know an awful lot about the. Uh, I don't know an awful lot about the review. Well, there was one thing that uh, you mentioned uh, that you, uh, Jesse uh, Green suggested something like you need to be bilingual to understand the show, which was not true. The entire plot, every bit of it, was spoken in English. As with K-pop tunes, there was Korean infused into the lyrics, but not necessarily like that's the lyrics are not the heart of a K-pop song. Okay, you're not going for the poetry. <laughs> you're going for the the dance, the spectacle, the fun, uh, and the fact that they can sing actually pretty well. I mean, Luna has been noted to, like her high notes are extraordinary but that is another thing that kind of drove people away another problem though was green referred to the lighting design as squint inducing (laughs) yeah the producers took some offense to that saying look there is some inherent racism in calling a, a, a show's lighting design a show about korean musical artists and you're referring to something as squinting <laughs> that is problematic. And the producers actually uh, released an open letter uh, that I think was published at least in playbill that they demanded that the New York times issue some sort of an apology because of that New York times responded. Uh, we didn't see any kind of racism in that. We're not going to do that. Yeah. That's <laughs> interesting. <isn't it? laughs> I mean, um, you know, I mean, I think if you've got any chance of getting an older audience who might come and take a chance on seeing K-pop, you've basically mm-hmm. just killed it by yep. those those remarks. Well, and and the fact that there was a controversy back and forth, you know, that that they had a review, they fought the review, and that the 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 review they just went, no, we're not going to overturn this. It's a it's an unfortunate choice of language. Um, yeah, and you would hope that you know the critic might. Have thought a little differently by what they were saying. It, it it's interesting. The New York Times just you know knocked it off and said and said no, we're not interested. I mean, they were very careful with their language and the response and everything. But they said, I think what you're seeing is not what we're seeing. So, yeah, there will be no apology issue. Yeah. And also, they might be saying, well, you know, clearly this show has got a bad notice, and this is sour grapes over a bad review. Yeah, and yeah, you know. It, it doesn't necessarily carry the same the same merit. It's also interesting as to who is sometimes in those situations, you know, making the complaint. You know, if it's if it's Cameron McIntosh or it's a uh, you know big heavyweight circling oh, in, yeah. something then you might suddenly be jumping up and responding slightly differently. But you know, here we've had a show that across the board it sounds has not received very good notices. And yeah. you know, it's it's a sort of sour grapes of something that's 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 not very good to start with. 
Well, it did in 2017. It got some amazing reviews with the immersive show. So yeah. here's here's my final point that I'm going to bring up that I think is probably one of the biggest deals in why it didn't get better reviews, hence didn't drive the tentative crowd. Changing the script between the 2017 and the 2022 unfortunately changed some of the essential elements of the K-pop genre that made the story more compelling, mainly that pressure to be a K-pop musician. In the 2017 version, they really heavily addressed the ideas of maintaining public decorum, maintaining a social media presence, the years of training it, it takes to make make it to the top. This is one incredibly unfortunate thing that is a dark side of K-pop that we don't really hear about too much is the rate of suicide. It's estimated that somewhere around 30% of all South Koreans suffer from a mental illness, but roughly half of them seek treatment. But particularly in the world of K-pop, the years of pressure leading up to eventual stardom or possible stardom, I mean, you could be picked off anywhere along the process and be like, you are not going to fit the mold that we are presenting, so you're out. But if you actually make it, the pressure to maintain it is so great that it's almost unbearable. I mean, I talked about this a few episodes ago with uh, Marilyn Monroe and Arthur Miller and how a lot of her self-confidence uh, or her issues in self self-confidence came from the fact that she was Marilyn Monroe. She was an icon and a self-aware icon. The difficulty of maintaining that was so was so world-breaking. I mean, she felt like Atlas all the time. But there have been several prolific figures just over the last several years in the world of K-pop who have taken their own lives for various reasons, but all related to the pressure of being in that industry. I mean, just living a lot in Korean culture. I had a friend who in his 20s, so, you know, 20 years ago, uh, taught English in Korea. And he said he came out of a market one day, and uh, it was uh, underneath an apartment high-rise, and a, a young girl just fell to the street in front of him. She jumped from a window. And when he started asking around, they were like, yeah, this kind of actually happens a lot. Yeah. I mean, look, let's, I think there's a couple of things that are worthy of pausing. The first thing is to just to consider, you know, the history of of South Korea, you know, you think back mm -hmm. to the to the war that that you know that happened, you know, not that many yeah. decades ago. When you think about it and how the country was, or you know, obliterated, Seoul was obliterated. When you visit Seoul now, it is the most amazing high tech city, and the way it's built its way back is quite e e extraordinary. But the little right. I know from, from 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 my experience of working with Korea, there was a few things that interested me. Is that 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 it, it's it's a country that you know, and it seems with, with with certain certain communities, there's a lot of pride in their work and in what they do yeah. and how they deliver it. Mm -hmm. So sometimes on a show where something isn't fixed or it's not working, it can sort of become a bigger problem than when you realise when you realise it because they've been trying to fix it and they haven't wanted to have the embarrassment of telling you it's not it's not working. Yeah, was actually to come and ask for help and talk to you about help would actually solve the problem so much sooner. Than right. possibly the problem that you were dealing with. Yeah, maybe you could translate that into a sort of lifestyle of 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 of, of, of mental well-being as well, and, and and juxtapose that in a certain way. So there is an exorbitant amount of pressure of this responsibility and pride of delivery, where you know you don't admit yeah. necessarily that admission that something's not going so well or you're not feeling so great. The other the other element um, that I would say, you know, it's it's 
an important thing actually I found in Korea, which I, I was being told about by a, by a Korean colleague when I was there, was um, crying is is seen as is something quite shocking in Korea. <laughs> it's quite a it's quite a, a a shocking thing to see, especially when a man cries. Oh yeah. And um, I went to watch a production of Death of the Salesman in Korea, um, performed by by um, uh, a Korean cast, and I was actually with some international colleagues who who. I was very annoyed with actually because some of them were rather arrogant about the production they watched and, and what they saw. They, 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 they didn't get part of it in a way. And it was partly mm. because of one particular moment that happened in it, which was that the actor himself playing Willie Loman cried on stage in, in quite a big way. And the audience watching this, who were Korean, were absolutely shocked by it. And of course, it's because they're not confronted usually with an older man on stage. Korean man crying and a lot of them didn't know how to deal with this now some of the colleagues who were with me western colleagues were rather arrogant about this and sort of you know way it was being delivered and performed and I said you don't realize how important this moment is what, what this culture represents this is an absolutely shocking moment for these people to be watching this moment in in, in the play and actually I think you know probably created quite a visceral moment in the culture for what they were watching at that particular minute right yeah. But it also says an awful lot about the society. I mean, one of the most shocking things I found in Korean television uh, was on their Saturday primetime shows. They have to have a game show on a Saturday and they break the game show often in the middle where you have a family that are making an appeal because they're living in South Korea and, and they're, they've not seen their son or their daughter or their family member because they're in North Korea. And oh, they're, they're, they're doing this sort of thing. And it's a, big primetime moment that happens. So you'll have Saturday night primetime something get gets stopped for this appeal that happens in their in their their main shows. And uh, and when you watch it that it's quite a, a shocking thing to to take in and and watch because you do realise that there's this 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 present danger that sits there and you know this 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 structure. I mean I have to say the whole thing of, of going to the um uh the the, the 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 border because you can actually get very close in Seoul. It's only twenty minutes away um, some people who, who visited, um, uh, um, Korea might know this. There's an area called the Joint Security Area, and it's literally, um, there's a, a, a border, and you can look over about five miles, and the other side is, is North Korea. Um, Oof. and, uh, it's only about 20 minutes from Seoul, but when you go down there, the most extraordinary thing about it is that it's a bit of a tourist attraction. So they've yeah. got like a merry-go-rounds and, 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 and some funfair amusement things, and they've got, you can't take a photograph at the fence, but you can stand, 10 feet back and then take a photo if you want but they've got like viewing cameras uh you know like, like binocular things you can oh take yeah yeah okay so yeah to look through and watch this stuff and you've got soldiers standing there looking and observing stuff you've got all of this side of things going on and, and you're there as a western tourist effectively sort of looking at it but you've also got koreans who've gone down there for a day down there as well but mm -hmm. you are also realizing that on the other side is this 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 country and between the land between these two areas is, is completely, you know, uh, laid out with landmines. Of course, it's quite a, a, a dark, a dark side, but you know, I mean, they're, they're not alone in that. I think, you know, there's other Asian cultures that have quite strong suicide rates and things, uh, you know, by the, yeah. by the nature of that and the, and, and the pressure that people put on themselves. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll try to flip that coin and make it a little bit more positive here. But I think, I, I mean, from a storytelling perspective, if that gravitas could have been told in the Broadway adaptation, we might have had a little bit more 
I, I, I wonder if the reviews would have been a bit better. But what I will say is that uh, when Seoul got to host the 2018 Winter Olympics, everybody got a taste of K-pop. Everybody the world over who was watching it. They watched their team, come, you know, uh, enter into the Grand March at the beginning and everything. And a K-pop song accompanied them for every team. So everybody got immersed. People the world over, they're they're into it. Maybe it's just not a Broadway thing. <laughs> it's quite possible. And I mean, I'd say actually, if you if you want to get a taste of, of Korean culture, actually, is actually to look at how exciting their movie scene is at the moment. Because there's oh my some God. fantastic Korean movies coming out. And um, you know, it's a very different I mean, you know, people sort of now think of, you know, South Korea and they also oh Gangnam style, all that music. Now look look beyond that because actually some yeah. of the writing, the script writing that's coming out of uh, particularly in their movie industry is is extraordinary at the moment in in in, in Korea, and so you know I I think aside of K-pop not biting on on Broadway, I think one has to look to South Korea and recognise that as artists there is a very exciting genre coming out in, yes. in different fusions in that country. K-pop yes. is not is is one facet of actually a country that's incredibly diverse in its its culture and its writing. There is a hunger to work and, and succeed and and be the best that they can be. And I think um, you know, I think in terms of the, it's a it is a tip of the iceberg at the minute, but I think South Korea will continue to be quite a major player now in 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 in, in the arts scene globally actually. I agree. I agree. I mean when Parasite won best everything several years ago uh, at the Oscars and the director said, you know, if you just get over the idea that you have to read the two little white lines at the bottom, you're going to allow yourself to enjoy a lot more things. You know? <laughs> and I think that's the, I think that's the important thing. As I say, so, so don't base, I guess, an entire country on, on one, on one $5 billion, you know, global enterprise. <laughs> there's, there's a, there's a lot of, interesting stuff going on in, in inside that country. Richard and I continued our conversation for quite a while, wondering what would have been more successful for a K-pop musical. Should it now go to Vegas? What about an arena tour show? Should it have released a cast album first? Maybe so. What we were most surprised about was that even though neither of us had seen it, we found ourselves talking about a K-pop musical for a full two hours. But fortunately for you, you got the best parts of it. I want to thank Richard Jordan again for being my guest on this episode, and I wish him many broken legs as he heads to Australia for the next several weeks to put up another show. But in the meantime, this is Aaron Odom from Trident Theatre in Sheridan, Wyoming, signing off for another episode of Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. I'll get another episode out to you in another two weeks, and I'll see you at intermission. Ooh.